And I'm glad that you can be with us and that we can uh, gather around the Word and open it and uh, enjoy each other's company as we sing and open the Word together. You're in Luke chapter 12, and uh, I've been circling this passage for a little while. And it just so happens that a couple of weeks ago, a friend of mine, he wrote an article online which centered around a question that I still cannot seem to get out of my head. Um, And a question actually pertains to this exact passage, so I figured it would be a good segue to introduce tonight's topic. The question he posed in the article that he wrote is this, why didn't Jesus tell any parables using illustrations from the family business? Which is an interesting question, I think. Because, of course, you perhaps know that Jesus' father, Joseph, of course, was a carpenter. And by every indication, a very skilled one. And we have to just guess at the idea that Jesus, young teenage Jesus, perhaps, was following his dad. As he went from handyman job to handyman job doing various carpentry work around Nazareth. It's somewhat conjecture, I suppose. But actually, not so much. If you actually keep your finger in Luke 12... Go with me to Matthew chapter 13. Matthew chapter 13. Jesus visits his hometown of Nazareth, begins teaching, and of course he's maligned and rejected for some of the things that he begins talking about as he teaches there. And they have this interesting exchange between Jesus and the crowds. Notice verse 53 of Matthew chapter 13. It says, And when Jesus had finished these parables... He went away from there, and coming to his hometown, he taught them in their synagogue, so that they were astonished, and said, Where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? And are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? And are not all his sisters with us? Where then did this man get all these things? They were amazed at this supposed carpenter, this handyman, this one who works primarily with his hands in a business of trade, could somehow speak and talk with such eloquence and wisdom and power. Maybe it's just my own imagination, but what I read into this text perhaps here is that, if you will, Joseph and Sons Carpentry Company was doing okay. They were a proficient business in and around Nazareth, perhaps. But again, this makes it odd. Doubly odd, I would say, that Jesus never once in all of his sermons, you can scour the Gospels, used imagery or even used illustrations from his time, the world of carpentry and woodworking and such. He told tales of fishermen and farmers and bakers and businessmen and merchants and shepherds. There's parables galore of such industries, but never carpenters. There's no chapter or verse where Jesus compares the kingdom of God To a hammer and nail, you won't find it. Instead, the kingdom of heaven is connected to seeds and to sowers and to precious treasure. All of which begs the question, why? Why wouldn't Jesus the carpenter talk about carpentry in his sermons, in his parables? Well, I think the answer to that question is right here for us. I think it's found right here in Luke chapter 12, where Jesus is 
giving all of these perhaps very familiar truths. Indeed, Luke 12, if you just read it, if you just study it, it has a lot of very familiar truths, familiar verses that you're probably actually more familiar in other places. In fact, some of the verses that Pastor Nathan read are probably more often referenced by its Matthew chapter 6 counterpart. We often think of seek first the kingdom of God from Matthew 6.33 and not Luke 12.31. Nevertheless, all these truths that Jesus talks about here. Not being anxious, laying up your treasure in heaven and seeking first the kingdom. We're familiar with those With those truths, with those ideas, with those concepts, they are very much part and parcel with our faith. However, what I love about what Luke does here is he offers a slightly different rendering of Jesus' words. And he includes this phrase which is unique to his gospel. A phrase which you won't find in any of the others, even though I think the phrase is borne out in all the other gospels. And I would even say in the entire Bible. And this phrase, I think, which is absolutely vital, crucial to the way in which we understand the Christian faith. Notice verse 32 back in our text, chapter 12 of Luke. Where Jesus says this, right after that very familiar truth, seek first the kingdom of God, and these things will be added to you. Luke includes this phrase, fear not, little flock, for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Fear not, little flock. That's the phrase. Unique to Luke's gospel, unique to this little scene in which Jesus is giving all these very familiar truths. And indeed, I think these words are some of the most precious in this entire teaching scene that we have here. With just a bevy of meaning behind them. As Jesus here calls his followers, disciples, yes, but also some in the crowds, his Precious little flock, this term of endearment perhaps, denoting his care for them, denoting his affections for them. He is here speaking very much to the fact that all of those who were here in front of him, he had an eye for. They were this little flock that he was tending towards as he is the good shepherd. He, of course, is here revealing that even without saying it. I am the shepherd who watches over my sheep. Therefore, sheep, fear not. But he is sure here to include this incredibly affecting term of assurance that they need not be afraid. Fear not, little flock, he says. If you search the scriptures, that is perhaps one of the most commonly repeated promises that come from the mouth of Jesus or from the mouth of God himself. As he says to his followers over and over again, don't be afraid, fear not, for I am your God. And I think fear not and fear not little flock has been Jesus' point throughout this entire little exchange that we have here. Uh, to, under, to really understand these words then, as he says here, fear not little flock, for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. To understand the weight of that, I think we have to sort of, again, uh, familiarize ourselves with the context. That's Bible study 101, right? Context is king. In verse 13 of the same chapter, 
Jesus is approached by this man in the crowd who is very concerned with uh, something to him that is very pressing. He has this very pressing question that he has to ask Jesus. Notice, it says, verse 13, Someone in the crowd said to him, that is Jesus, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he, Jesus, said to him, Man, Who made me a judge or arbitrator over you? And he said to them, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. This young man... The assumption is, of course, that this is the younger brother. He comes to Jesus complaining over the fact that we might assume, we might infer from just this man's question that his older brother has failed to properly divide his late father's estate. He's still waiting to get that check in the mail, if you will. That, That deed that says this is the part of the estate that you were granted as part of your father's will. And he's waiting on it. He's waiting on his older brother to do his older brother job. That is to rightly divide his father's inheritance among his younger brothers. Jesus, though, replies with essentially a reply of, that's not my business. What business of it is mine to interject myself into this matter that you have with your brother? And then he turns to the crowds and uses this Little interchange between this young man and Jesus to address them with a word regarding earthly possessions. Again, look at verse 15 as he says, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. Life, Jesus says, as he's teaching here. Is not defined by what you can accumulate. By what you can acquire. And yes it was perhaps a very valid concern that this younger brother had. He was probably right. Maybe we can imagine that this older brother is just taking his sweet old time. To do what he was supposed to do. And this younger brother is getting a little bit annoyed with it. It was a very valid concern, but what Jesus is saying, and perhaps what Jesus is, is suggesting, that this younger brother had become overwhelmed and consumed, and we could say overcome by this idea that he could not move on until all of these things were secured in his name. The possessions seem to overcrowd everything else. So to further explain this, Jesus then tells a parable as he is often seen doing. Notice verse 16. And he told them a parable saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, What shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods and I will lay, I will say, excuse me, to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Perhaps your Bible is one of those that 
divides sections of scripture into paragraphs and it includes a title. In mine it says, the parable of the rich fool. And indeed, that's what Jesus is talking about here. This idea of the folly, the the madness of finding your eternal security and these possessions that you accumulate here on earth. This farmer, this one who has perhaps blessed with a very healthy, even plentiful crop. He had come to find so much peace and satisfaction in the ability that he had that he was blessed with plentiful crops. Earthly possessions. He says, what good? What good is it? Relax, I can, he says. I can eat and drink and be merry. I have nothing else to worry about. Instead, God says to him, fool. What good is all of those silos that are filled to the brim? What good do they really do? Because night, this very night, God is saying to him, is the night of your reckoning. This is the night of your soul's reaping. What good is that full barn to you in this hour? All of that does is really just provide someone else after you with something to have as their possession. You can't take it with you. As my, I don't know if my dad made this up. (laughs) Maybe you've heard the phrase that you've never seen. Maybe you have, I don't know. But you almost will never see a U-Haul following a hearse. It's something that we can't take our possessions with us when we leave this earth. And that's Jesus' point. The stockpiling of, of all of these resources, of all of these possessions, these things that we can accumulate on earth. It will never be enough to settle our souls in the hour of God's coming and that day of reckoning. No matter how much we have accumulated, no matter how much we have earned, no matter how full our bank account is, it does nothing for us in light of eternity. Not to say that it doesn't matter, but it doesn't ultimately matter. There's a difference between what is good and what is, yes, perhaps our obligation, perhaps what is our responsibility, and what we make ultimate. What we make our gods, if you will. And I think very much indeed, this rich fool had come to see that the things that he could acquire, the things that he could accumulate, those were his gods. His gods was the silos that were filled with plenty. What need have I for anything else, he seems to say. And Jesus' warning though goes both ways as he is about to show us in the verses that Pastor Nathan read in verses 22 down through verse 31. Because remember his warning. His warning is, be on guard against all covetousness. That's a word that's not just for those who are wealthy, as he is here just exampled for us in this parable. Those who think they have nothing to worry about, actually they uh, have a false sense of security. This word is also a reminder to those who are perhaps not as well off. That it is foolish to put their hopes in obtaining such possessions. That's his point. The emptiness of those things that we often think can give us a sense of peace and security in life of eternity. We could say that this is a word of caution that here Jesus gives both for the prince and the pauper. To the prince it's a word of warning that his abundance 
can't really give him the safety and security that he thinks that it can. As Jesus here says, life is more than food and clothing. Notice verse 22. And he said to his disciples, therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, or about your body, what you will put on. For this life is more than food, and the body more than clothing. He says to the rich man, to the rich fool, as he has just said here, it is may, life is way more, made up of much more than just thinking that you can accumulate enough to give your soul peace. It's a false sense of safety, a false sense of security. But it goes the other way as well. To the poor man, to the pauper who thinks that such abundance, that if he can only get more, just a little bit, if he can only get enough, then he will be safe, then he will be secure. Jesus has just said, life is more than food and clothing. You know, I remember, I didn't write this down, I should have, and it just came and came back into my head. Then in fact that the actor, Jim Carrey, once said that he wishes that everyone... Everyone could have as much success as they could ever want. So they could see that it's not as fulfilling as they think that it is. That's a really bad paraphrase of what he actually says, but it's a true quote. You can find the interview. He has come to perhaps see, and Jim Carrey, if you read anything about him in his later years, he's gotten to some very far-off, crazy philosophical ideas and religions. Because again, I think very much he's on display as sort of being a man who is on the search for something to settle his soul. There's this really funny speech (laughs) that Jim Carrey gave one time. He was accepting a golden globe. And he's standing there in front of all of his peers. You know, at these reward shows, these actors make up to feel, make themselves feel good. And he's standing there accepting this Golden Globe. And he says, I am now Jim Carrey, two-time Golden Globe award winner. And he goes on, he says, but you know what I'll be thinking about tonight? Think about how I can be Jim Carrey, three-time Golden Globe award winner. Just the sense of accomplishment hasn't settled him. You'll still be thinking about the next thing. Still be thinking about the next thing that he can accomplish, that he can accumulate, that he can acquire. Because no amount of earthly success reaches into his soul to settle him. I think that's a very revealing speech, not just of Jim Carrey, but anyone, as Jesus has here revealed, anyone who thinks that what they can acquire can reach down into what is eternal. Both, Jesus here is saying, both the rich man and the beggar can be overtaken, as he says here, by this anxiousness, by this all-consuming worry that, that over what they possess or what they don't possess. It can consume us to where we think that something else, other than what Jesus says I can give you, will actually satisfy. I love What Alexander McLaren says here on this very point. He says, quote, anxious care and satisfied possession are at the bottom the very same things. The root of both, the rest of the one, and the anxiety of the other is the overestimate of outward good. 
You see, that's what here Jesus is saying. The one who doesn't have and he wants, he's thinking that all of those outward goods will actually make him happier. And the one who has, he sees what he has and he overestimates what he has, what he has acquired. And he thinks, I can rest, I can relax, I can be merry for what else do I need? But Jesus says they have both forgotten that those things cannot and will not last. It's an overestimate of outward good. This is what Jesus has in mind. Both with his parable, both with the preceding teaching. But yes, even here as he gets into perhaps the most familiar verses in the gospels. This teaching about anxiety in our souls. Notice again verse 22. And Jesus said to his disciples, therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, nor about your body, what you will put on. For life is more than food, and the body more than clothing. Consider the ravens, they neither sow nor reap. They have neither storehouse nor barn, and yet God feeds them. Of how much more value are you than the birds? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? If then you are not able to do a small thing as that, why are you anxious about the rest? Consider the lilies, how they grow, they neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass which is alive in the field today and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much more will he clothe you, O you of little faith? And do not seek what you are to eat and what you are to drink, nor be worried for all the nations of the world. Seek after these things, and your Father knows that you need them. Instead, seek his kingdom, and these things will be added unto you. Five times in those verses, Jesus mentions this notion of, of being anxious or fear of being fearful or worrying. It always tends towards this idea of just this undue preoccupation, this undue sort of being overcome about one's life, worrying about where the next thing is going to come from. And it stems, as Jesus here says, from an overestimate of earthly good. As he says, verse 23, for life is more than food and the body more than clothing. His point, no amount of earthly investments can give us assurance for the future. You can't find the right securities, find the right investments. Yes, the stock markets will not give you peace. And thinking that it will is ultimately a path to failure, a path to worry, a path, as he says, of living in suspense. That's what that word there in verse 29 says, where he says, nor be worried. It's this idea of riding along the waves. Have you ever seen those images? <laughs> Those images of a ship out in the middle of the Atlantic. You know, we think of often the ocean right along the shoreline. But have you seen how high the breakers are out in the high seas? And you see those ships crashing and riding the waves. That's the image. That we're high and we're riding high on the waves and then we're down and we're sinking low as the next breaker seems to come. And Jesus says, the life of faith is not a life of suspense. 
It's not a life worrying about the next high or low. As Jesus here explains, consider the ravens. Verse 24, consider these scavenger birds. (laughs) That's a startling idea. These birds were unclean. They were not fit to be touched, fit uh, fit to be eaten, fit to be used as food. And Jesus says, consider them. Consider how even these unclean birds are still cared for. As he says, consider the ravens, they neither sow nor reap. They have neither storehouse nor barn, and yet God feeds them. What do ravens eat? Carcasses, roadkill. And Jesus says, yet still God cares for them. Even still, their needs are met. And his wonderful point of how much more value are you than these little disgusting birds. You're worth way more in God's eyes, Jesus says. Or even consider the lilies. Equally as surprising, perhaps, as he compares them to the glory of King Solomon. I perhaps do not have to remind you, going back into the second kings, of the opulence and the splendor of Solomon's Israel. It was unrivaled. Indeed, whenever I read those stories, those accounts of how uh, rich and majestic Solomon's kingdom was, it reminds me of that old story, that fable of King Midas, where everything he touched turned to gold. That's seemingly like Solomon. Everything is laden with gold. Everything he touches seems to get more expensive and more valuable. And Jesus says, even those unnoticed lilies in an unvisited meadow, even they are decked with the glory of God. That's how intense his care is. And that's where the gist of his teaching comes in verse 29. Do not seek what you are to eat and what you are to drink, nor be worried. Don't live in suspense. For all the nations of the world seek after these things, and your Father knows that you need them. Instead, seek his kingdom, and these things will be added to you. This is the life of faith that he is here describing. It's opposite of this life of worry, this life of suspenseful living. It's a life rooted, as he here Jesus suggests, rooted in the certainty that this God in heaven, he sees and he knows what you need at every hour. What a humbling thought. At least for me, it's humbling to remember this idea that God in heaven, the creator who spoke everything into existence, spoke everything into being, sees and knows even the minute things that I have need of. And that certainty that Jesus is here just reiterated. This is what frees us to seek the kingdom of God above all else. And knowing, yes, even with the knowledge, as Jesus here iterates, that that kingdom itself is a gift of God's grace. As he says in verse 32, Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. 
One of the primary reasons we don't have to fear about those future days. We don't have to spend our lives running ourselves ragged, stockpiling and storehousing all of these resources. Prepping for doomsday. It's because our future is certain in Christ. Who says the kingdom is already yours because you have me. This little word, fear, not little flock, unburdens, unworries. Yes, all of Jesus' sheep. Because it gives us the assurance that his kingdom is not something we have to worry about. We don't have to lose sleep over whether God's kingdom is going to come about or not. Because God's kingdom is something that he himself delights in bringing, delights in giving to his flock. Go with me to Mark chapter 4 to see this illustrated in another way. Mark chapter 4 is a wonderful passage in the gospel of Mark. It, It begins with the famous story, the famous parable of the sower. But I love Mark chapter 4 and verse 26. Notice what happens. Jesus talking about the kingdom says, The kingdom of God is as, is, excuse me, is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground. He sleeps and rises night and day and the seed sprouts and grows. He knows not how. The earth produces by itself first the blade, then the ear, then the full grain in the ear. But when the grain is ripe, at once he puts in the sickle because the harvest has come. This is wonderful little illustration that yes, this farmer, he goes about his business. And one day, perhaps unbeknownst to him, he goes to sleep and up is springing a plentiful crop. He cannot meticulously see all the little steps perhaps. And it would, yes, defeat the whole purpose if he goes to sleep after sowing that seed, wakes up, and he doesn't see any little sprouts. How foolish would it be of the farmer to dig up each seed because it's not doing what it's supposed to. (laughs) Instead, he is called to faithfully tend, and he can't perhaps see the growth. He just sees it happen overnight. Such is God's kingdom. Something that comes about, yes, despite how toilsome we put ourselves into it, it comes about because just like the seed, it sprouts and as he says, it grows up, he knows not how. It brings me back to my original question. Why did Jesus never talk about carpentry in any of his sermons? No lathes. No nails, no hammers. My friend posited this, and I think it is something I haven't quite been able to get over. He said in the article, because the kingdom of God is not built, it's planted. I thought about that. The kingdom of God is not built, it's planted. And even here, Jesus says that very thing, that the kingdom of God is like a seed that goes into the ground, and it sprouts, and then it grows. And I was thinking about what Jesus says elsewhere in the Gospels. That like a seed which falls to the ground and dies before any type of harvest is reaped. So too is Jesus' kingdom, the kingdom of heaven, precursored by death. John chapter 12 and verse 24 says this. Truly, 
Jesus says, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. And in this, he was talking about himself. As Paul says in that great chapter, 1 Corinthians 15, and in verse 36, he says, You foolish person, what you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And so it goes. That Jesus, I think, is intimating that he himself is the seed of promise that goes into the ground and dies. And what happens out of his death? Springs the resurrection of abundant life. Out of the soil of Jesus' death, we could say, grows up the plentiful crop of the church. We perhaps don't know all the ins and outs of how, but it comes about because the seed falls to the ground and dies. The church of God is not built, it's planted. The kingdom of God is given, yes, to us. You might hear now and then talk of building the kingdom. And even here sometimes we see this passage used as perhaps a law. Seek first the kingdom of God. As if to say you better be doing your part or God's kingdom cannot come about. I think that misses the mark. I think that misses the good news. Because you and I for... Every amount of well-meaning virtue and effort we can dispense. We, you and I, earthlings, cannot do anything to speed up or slow down God's kingdom. It's going to come in his way, in his timing, when he precisely means to. It's like that old adage that the great wizard Gandalf says. A wizard is never late, nor is he early. He arrives precisely when he means to. And such is the kingdom of God. It's not late, even though perhaps we wished it would have come many years before this. Nor is he early. His kingdom is coming about precisely in his way. Precisely when he determines is the right time. Which again... Just means that we do not need to be anxious about this part of our faith. Here is what Jesus says, verse 25 of our text. Which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? Jesus says, what good is all that worry? What good is all your hand-wringing and your white-knuckling? Does that actually add any amount of life to your life? No, actually, Jesus says... It doesn't do any amount of good. Not a lick. We can worry ourselves to death. About a great many things. But here Jesus says. The ultimate thing. The ultimate thing of all things. My kingdom. Need not be one of those things that you're worried about. Because fear not little flock. It's my delight. It's my father's good pleasure. He takes so much joy. In giving you the kingdom. Which is exactly what happens. When he gives you himself. I love this passage. One who wrote this. He says quote. The kingdom is already. An accomplished fact. In Jesus himself. We are not invited to make it happen, but to believe that it is and to let it come. 
That's our job. We don't have to worry about being carpenters, fretting over the next nail to make sure we hammer it just right so that the kingdom of God comes about. That's not our calling. Our calling is not to, quote, build the kingdom. It's to announce a kingdom that's coming. It's already on its way, and it's unstoppable. No matter who or whoever says what they want to say. No matter if some such leader says that the world is going to end and everything is going to uh, fall into the abyss, into the oblivion of deep space in the next 10 years because of some uh, 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 some such economical crisis. God says his timing is better. He knows his kingdom is unstoppable. Fear not, little flock. The certainty of that. The certainty of that kingdom. That's what frees us to seek the kingdom first. Notice what Jesus says back in our text. He says, fear not, little flock, for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. And because of that certainty, because we can be so sure that the ultimate thing is, yes, already ours in Jesus Christ. Notice what he says. Sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches No moth destroys, for where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. You see, it's because of the certainty of, quote, our investment in Jesus, we can hold every other possession loosely. We don't have to be misers. We don't have to stockpile or put all of our hopes and dreams in the next thing that we can acquire. Because you and I, my friends, we already have the best possession of all. A possession that will never wear out, that will never fade away, that will never fail, and that can never be taken away. Fear not, little flock. The kingdom of God is yours. You're free. You're free to announce a kingdom coming and to live in light of it. You are unburdened from the yoke of trying to make it happen. The kingdom is unstoppable. We are free to live in light of it and to praise God because of it. Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Amen. Let us pray.